Please, just wanted to let you all know that Habibdi Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and others because it's a progressive group of voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives that we see in right-wing and liberal media presently today. And so I want to recommend some shows uh, that are part of this network that I personally enjoy. So Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as Feel Rouge, which is an Indigenous storytelling series that featured stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger Media is listener supported, so please head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe where you can get subscriber-specific content. So yeah, hope you all enjoy the show today. talking about Dune with two of my favorite Muslim men, Shadi and Rob. Uh, okay, so this episode is after a lot of requests uh, on the Muslim Rum Springa Patreon and the Habibti Please Patreon and my friends. And so um, I'm not a Dune expert. I've tried audience. I've really tried. And so all I know is that Dune is perhaps the greatest sci-fi series. It's also considered soft sci-fi. I'm learning. Uh, it's from 1965 uh, and it's by Frank Herbert. But these two experts are joining me today. So Rob, would you introduce yourself a bit to the audience? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rob. Uh, I go by my handle on Twitter is uh, at smooth poser, one word. Um, I, also host some, I also host my own show, uh, All the Wrong Lessons, which I'll talk about later. But yeah, uh, sort of I guess if we're talking about like my history with Dune, uh, not sure I understand that you didn't really get into it because it is very dense <laughs> and a little obtuse, like if just because of the way it was written and like the era that it's from. But I did read it like as as like a teenager, maybe like when I was 13. And I remember you remind me of when I was that age, I was working my side gig. I was working as a uh, like a tutor at Kumon. Did you ever guys go to Kumon? I was a tutor at Kumon when I did when I read this book. Oh yeah. my god! Yeah, I was reading it while no I was way. teaching math. I was teaching math to some kids, and then this ten-year-old kid said that book looks boring and dumb, and then he made me feel bad for liking the book. But that's what it reminds me of. Just this kid telling me. Oh, the way me I'm like, the way I'm like, I don't. No, I like Dune. Um, Shadi, can you introduce yourself a little to the audience, and we're gonna dive in a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't have a podcast or anything to plug. Um, I uh, plug I, a bail I, fund or something. <laughs> like plug yeah, that. yeah. Donate to free the yeah. free fifty bail fund in Madison. Um, we could use the help. And uh, yeah, in my free time, I am a scholar of the white mind. I am director of operations at the Said Institute for uh, Caucasian Studies. <laughs> and yeah, I think similar to Rob, I was in high school when I started reading Dune. Um, uh, like late high school, uh, also working at Giga Kumon. Um, I did it first time through on audiobook because I have uh, attention span issues and just needed to like fidget while I listened to the audiobook. So, um, but this was my first time through reading it for for this podcast was the first time through in, in book form. Okay, so I... It's been over a month of me asking these guys to do this and it's taken me more than a month to read it and I'm not done yet. But, but I got... 
I like spoiled it for myself so I would understand. So that's how that's how we know Dune. Um, what what is Dune for like a lay audience? So like a lot of people are just affiliating it with this new movie because they are big fans of the Timothy guy. Um, <laughs> but like for people who aren't familiar with this, like I guess it's just a series. It's a series. It's not just a series. It's a series of books that has influenced so many other works in, in pop culture it's influenced futurama it's influenced star trek it's influenced so much so to you two like what is dune is that too vague a question <laughs> i don't know it's I, I don't know if you want to take it rob or otherwise i can yeah take a I, swing I think you can it. do it because you got you did have a funny you uh, have the best you, yeah. yeah what is dune <laughs> so so dune it's it it at the time it was considered maybe i don't know what the politics of it at the time were but um, my, the way that I've been sort of describing it to people that don't want to know, know anything about it is, uh, it's about, uh, 120 pound white boy who's like 15 played by Timothy Chalamet, um, named Paul, whose father is a Duke of a planet. Uh, he's sent to manage, uh, like basically Saudi Arabia in space. And so like they get there and the family is instantly cooed by a Royal family of gay Germans. Spoiler. I'm going to just spoil the whole thing. Paul's father is cooed or killed. Um, so then Paul and his former CIA agent mother managed to escape to the interior of Saudi Arabia and they find like Arabs there and they convince them that Paul is the Mahdi. And so then they uh, teach the Arabs there about like white woman witchcraft and uh, turns them into the most powerful fighting force in the universe. And they use that to first overthrow the gay Germans, uh, but then the king of England. And then he establishes a global caliphate uh, and he doesn't really ever explain why, but it's to prevent some horrible, terrible destiny. And that's kind of how the, the first book ends. That's a very good summary. That's like an mm -hmm. excellent. I think that's a good summary. Yeah. Rob, do you have anything to add to that beautiful summary? Yeah. I mean, beyond that, then we get into the property of like there's several books in the series. Yeah. Written throughout the author's life, Frank Herbert, and then his son, Brian, wrote a couple of books afterwards that either like were supposedly continuing the story and wrote a few prequel books, which, you know, aren't as entertaining. And then, you know, there's of course the, the batshit insane eighties movie that everyone like is really confused by. Um, my first exposure to Dune actually before reading the first book was the sci-fi channel, like miniseries, mm. which is really hard to find now. Uh, I think you can find it on YouTube, but finding a hard copy is really difficult. And it's kind of weird because it was like, very early CG and they hadn't figured it out yet. So the special effects are kind of strange and very dated. Acting's not that good, but their sequel series based on the second and third books is pretty good. Um, but yeah, like I consumed that first, then read the book and got into the books that way. But I think for me, I've only read the first three books and only. then book four, where his son becomes a giant worm. God was kind of where I fell off. Yeah. I, I also got to that one. I, I finished the fourth one uh and i actually read it twice because i i didn't get it the first time through uh and now i get it uh but i don't have any desire to read any more past that hmm. you're both scholars um i i like i'm proud of how far i got uh because i don't read sci-fi but um do you think that okay well let's talk about the david lynch film then now and then we'll go back to the themes in the book but i'm so the david lynch film one of you two can start, but I was just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a movie buff. So when people are like David Lynch, I was like, I'm learning who this man is this year. So I'm like the worst person for this. 
I think with the David Lynch film, for me, it's one of those like I like it visually. It's very interesting. And, you know, the art style and art direction is very cool. It's just like I don't actually know with this film if they're doing the whole first book or I've also heard that they're only doing the first half of the first book in the movie that's coming out soon, because the first book is just very like story dense and very like plot moving forward every like very fast. So not a lot of character, very plot heavy. So it was a lot of content to fit into one movie. And that David Lynch film was just so long, especially if you get the director's cut version, which is even longer, very hard to understand. And a lot of the changes that they made were like odd and puzzling, like how they made, you know, if folks who haven't watched the movie spoilers, but it's an old movie, that's not that good. Didn't they run out of money? That's the one where they ran out of money. I think so. To me, it looks like they ran out of money. Yeah, yeah, I was watching it and I was like, but sorry, keep going. Oh, no, no. I was just it was just like the way they decided to make like the the way that um, the Fremen, like the space Arabs that they have in the story, (laughs) that they defeat them with weird sound weapons with like the power of their voice. I was like, "Eh, I don't know about that. Um, I mean, but it's cool visually. Um, That's pretty much all I have to say about it, because I don't I've only watched it like one and a half times and I really don't feel like watching it again. Yeah. Yeah. I think like my two cents on it are one, thank God that that thing was made in the eighties so that people didn't have to be subjected to like representation complaints because Mm. there is, it is exclusively Caucasian. Like that whole cast is white people. (laughs) And like, I don't know. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I think that that discourse is like, so like circuitous and and tortured and doesn't get anyone anywhere so thank god that that thing was made before that discourse was around um the other thing yeah like in terms of budget like you can like the first i would say like 30 40 minutes of the movie look gorgeous i mean like these massive like incredible sets and then like spoiler like for the the big fight scene at the end uh it was like maybe $12, like like recycled <laughs> footage That's what in I the was fight. Like, yeah, and that was like, it was, I thought it was recycled, but I was like, maybe I'm like, my brain is twitching or something. I thought it was recycled. I was like, this is not new. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked cheap as hell at the end. You don't see cheap as hell. You got to watch the, the sci-fi channel miniseries. Yeah. <laughs> it, lo- it looks like, like a, a high school, school production. Okay. Yeah. Like with the costume design, it's like, it's like, oh, my God, this looks terrible. It really looks like they just made it from stuff they bought at Michael's and kind of threw together. It's like a high school theater. Um, yeah. No, you bring up a really good point because um, the sci-fi website had an article. They have conflicting articles about Dune. And one of the articles was why Arab and Islamic representation matters in the new Dune. And the author, um, who I don't think is Arab unless she's Phoenician, because her name is very Caucasian. Um it has a paragraph about how the new Dune being announced. She was hyped because she was like, this is how I'm going to get my representation and others will. So the new Dune has a very different discourse than the David Lynch Dune about representation politics. And I'm wondering, because you've started kind of talking about how you find that a torturous discourse, um, how we feel about the current discourse around the new Dune, which has much more money and much bigger names. Yeah, I guess I can kind of take it. I guess I guess my big thing is just who cares mostly. Um, But then, like, if you want to get into it um, specifically, the the most people seem to be very upset about the casting of Zendaya for Chani. And I I can read that two ways. The, The charitable reading of that is like, 
oh, what, you think any non-white person like passes for any other like ethnic group, uh, which is fair. Um, but like, I think the, the less charitable and I think probably more accurate reading is like people are just mad that that uh, a mixed person got put in this movie before an Arab, which shut up. I don't care. I, I don't care. Yeah. How about you, Rob? I will say as as a Filipino American, <laughs> yeah. the only Filipino American celebrity that I like, Dave Bautista, is in the movie. Oh. He's the only one that I can stand. So good on him, even though he's playing Raban, I think. I guess my other big thing was, um, yeah, what what did we see? Are Arabs actually mad about the casting? No, Arabs don't read. I've seen no. a Pakistani mad about I've seen a Pakistani mm. mad about the casting, not being Arab. A lot of folks are like not even tracking that like Dune. Is it like, Arab? I, I, yeah. There's a lot of people who I don't even who straight up just don't even know this movie's coming out, which is funny because it's a huge movie. Yeah. I've been talking to a lot of people like, what do you think about this Dune movie? They're like, what, the, what are you talking about? What even is that? Yeah, I think, okay, so what boggled my mind is um, that there was something that was like this since 1965 that I've never heard of. And I do all of this, like, quote unquote, like looking at Orientalism. And I felt like a dumbass, but I was like, I should have known about this years ago. So I guess, like, why, like, what do you both think as people who have known about it since your Kumon days? Um, why do you think this like eludes a certain group of people? Because like Rob said, I think there's a lot of people I know who would have loved to analyze this for like a paper and undergrad or something who just didn't know that it had all these themes that pop up and kind of parallels to perhaps the Middle East or like space jihad and things like that. Like why, why does this, why does this maybe get relegated as like a white bro movie? Anybody I've told I'm doing this episode to like my white socialist friends are like, oh, you like white sci-fi? And I'm like, it's actually not very white in my opinion. But yeah, I don't know. How do you think that or maybe our circles are different? Maybe I live in Toronto. So everybody who likes this is dumb, not dumb. Is white. <laughs> Freudian slip. Edit that out. Edit that out. I'm yeah. so sorry. No, keep it in. I'm so sorry. No, it's because I only like girl things. I had I struggle with anything that's sci-fi. I, I like this one, though. Hmm. I think also that that kind of does happen where general like like prominent nerd properties like just by default get associated with like white nerdy people. Um, I think that happens a lot where, you know, you're like, oh, that's just so white. It's like, no, it's not it's not fucking white to, you know, watch Demon Slayer on TV. First of all, that's a Japanese anime like <laughs> like the the sort of like way that um, I guess like most nerds uh, who are very vocal and like talk a lot are mostly white. So then like nerd culture gets defaulted to being associated with white people so that's maybe i think part of it where they're like oh dude that's like a white dude property um i mean with me it was just a nerd property because like no one else was reading it except for like three other people in school and we were like the three kids who like were dorks and watched anime together and i forgot how we got into it like someone i think just borrowed it from the library i think you know what it was one of them had read ender's game which you know that's its whole thing. I don't want to talk about Ender's Game right now. But like, I think the librarian was like, oh, you know, if you liked this, you should read some other older sci-fi. And they got them into Dune and we got into it that way. But it was very much like no one else liked this book except for me and my three friends. Because we talk about it to other people like, what the fuck are you talking about? That sounds boring as hell. Yeah, I think it was kind of similar for me. I was a friend basically got recommended uh, the book from the librarian at school. And then it was like that in a combination of I think there was like some NPR like list of a hundred good sci-fi books and they had sort of like a, uh, a pathway tree where it's like, if you like this about the first book that you started with, 
check out this other one. And that kind of led me to Dune. My mom also liked the, or at least watched the David Lynch one. Um, so I sort of had this awareness of like what it kind of was. But I also feel like, yeah, in general, like most Arabs in my life are like kind of mixed on sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, or if they like it, they like newer stuff and, and not necessarily the classics, which I think are seen as like especially old and white. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things like Dune kind of falls into that um, part of like, you know, any like cultural fiction where it's just kind of like the property is older and they didn't have a big like cross media event, like a big movie that was very successful or a TV show um, other than the book, the book being like the most successful out of all of its iterations. And because of that and because of its age, I think that it didn't have a lot of staying power, um, which will probably change, like depending on how successful the new movie is. I think it might like do that thing where like retroactively more people read the book, but it could also be like another, it could be like the recent Ender's Game movie where it didn't really make a lot of money and no one had a big thing to say about Ender's Game. The books again, didn't have a big, uh, didn't have a big like resurgence in popularity. So really, I think it hinges on whether or not just because of the way people consume media, whether or not this film is successful, we'll probably see if uh, people start picking up the books again. Yeah, I feel bad that I said it was dumb. I don't mean it that way. I call everything dumb. It's okay to think <laughs> no, it's dumb. Like, no. it's fine if that's so your dumb. opinion. Yeah, it, but, it is kind of dumb, like, to be honest. It's it's dumb, but pretending to be smart. Yeah, that's lot. why we're <laughs> going to get into the parallels that people try to argue to make very smart that I think are smart. But I think Pakistanis don't read. So I'll take on the Pakistani representation. No, because they, I, I really do wholeheartedly believe Pakistanis don't read. Um, they don't read beyond what they have to read for school. And um and like maybe the newspaper and so like i don't i wouldn't picture pakistanis getting into this and i do believe there's some weird deeper thing that we don't have to get in on this podcast maybe i'll figure it out for something later about how sci-fi is a white nerd domain for some reason even though there's like a lot of um bipoc who obviously consumes sci-fi and there's been like efforts to show that or like nerd culture and like why are white nerds so prominent like i kind of blame big bang theory a little bit but like it's it's just because i hate it um but um no there's it's okay so in dune there's been arguments that some of it can be paralleled with the 60s crude oil crisis in the middle east do you think people are reaching when they do those parallels like frank herbert was trying to get to, to was trying to make parallels to history so if we can talk a bit about the politics of dune i'd want to shift there and maybe talk we can start with maybe i don't know environmentalism and ecology was interesting to me as like somebody who has like kind of an environmental studies background is that a fair is that a fair theme yeah. to pull out from it yeah definitely oh absolutely definitely, yeah maybe i was reading it too pragmatically because like when i was reading it i'm like am i reading this as like a person who does too much school like i was just like oh these are the themes no i think that was very accurate very good yeah. observation on your part okay so like what do you think about like now that we have a climate crisis and people are talking about the crime climate every single day and trying to make parallels to it like this is an obviously an older piece of work, but it's coming back in this 2021 movie. What do you think it can like tell us about the environment and ecology and environmentalism? Yeah, I mean, I can kind of take a swing at it. Um, uh, like I think one of the big things that's emphasized is like that distribution of resources um, is like inseparable from questions of national sovereignty and like racial equality. Um, so the thing about the Fremen is that they are, you know, they're space Arabs, but uh, primarily like the, the big thing that you get when you, when you read the story is 
they are people shaped by scarcity mm. and that scarcity and specifically water scarcity uh is is like the main axis through which they experience everything else um and i i don't think that there's a reach there uh when you're talking about how environmental racism plays out in say the middle east i mean it, it, as someone that that knows a bit about palestine water politics um it's you can totally say the same thing that that the scarcity is is unequal and regardless of whether the settler on the same space is pumping from the same aquifer the settler just gets more water um so there's that angle and then i think like to the oil piece um the the spice in the book is uh almost like in my opinion almost like offensively heavy-handed stand-in for oil Mm -hmm. Uh, because the way that it functions in the book is that there's a guild that controls it there's a kind of a cartel um smuggling happens but still that's the primary vector through which it gets transported uh and then uh that is consumed and allows for uh inter galactic or faster than light space travel um so to me like that's that's obviously oil and it's like through the story where they shut down production of spice that they they basically are able to bring the empire to the bargaining table that's kind of a long-winded thing i like pass it to rob no no totally yeah that was really smart and very Mm -hmm. salient observation and the only thing i would add was like there's that whole character um dr kynes yeah, and as revealed to be Liet, like his whole role is like he's he's the imperial planetologist that's sent to like study the ecosystem of Arrakis um, on behalf of the emperor. But through like studying the planet, it's like kind of uh, the imperial characters sort of like accuse him of quote unquote going native, and like you know he th- like has sympathies with people who live on the natives of Arrakis, like the Fremen. Um, because of his experiences of like the climate and studying the nature and ecology of the planet and sort of it, it, it to me, it kind of speaks to how, you know, um, you know, under just capitalism, as well as like some religions, there's this sort of tendency to want to separate mankind from nature and see us as either like, um, like as at one extreme saying that we're masters of nature and we command it as we will, or, on the very charitable side, like we're stewards of nature, you know, and we have this responsibility to do that. But you, both things for me, pers- in my opinion, I'm not trying to speak for anyone, but in my opinion, kind of places humanity above nature and like separate from it. Yeah. And sort of like, as you can see with the ongoing climate crisis with people like us, especially like, you know, since we live in closer to the imperial core than some other folks, other brown folks, um, like we're able to like retreat from the effects of climate change because of like, you know, air conditioning or the towns that we live in and stuff. But for example, like back home in the Philippines right now, which is undergoing like historic typhoons that are like the worst that the nation has experienced in its history. Um, and we're seeing like how climate refugees are going to be like, you know, a bigger thing in like coming decades, not that they're already happening, but um, how, you know, throughout the global South, like, our neglect and abuse of the environment is sort of like, you know, it's coming to like knock on our door, right? I guess we can see this with the wildfires that are happening on the West Coast of the United States, where we spend so much time placing ourselves separate from the environment and separate from nature and somehow above it that, you know, that's not true. And it's now time is up, time's too late and it's coming and it's knocking on your door. And you spent too much time pretending like you were better than nature. And now nature's back. Um, and I think that that kind of strain, you can kind of see it in the way that the Imperial characters in Dune sort of treat Arrakis as sort of just a place where they can just extract spice and like not thinking about how the ecology is changing because of the way they're trying to like 
harness the worms and like this comes later in the later books like when it starts raining on arrakis and how that changes the environment but yeah that's just something that kind of speaks to me with like the way that dr kynes explains like his relationship to the worms and like the climate and stuff and how it changes his perspective on uh mankind and its relation to nature yeah yeah i appreciate that okay so i wasn't like reading too deeply into i was like am i doing that thing where people read too deeply because i saw so so many like appropriation takes that i was like am i becoming one of those people who sees appropriation no. or something and no. everything but i saw the environmentalism thing um and scarcity um and i saw like i i think there's an argument for declining empires Yes. Um, mm -hmm. I do see that, which is why it still baffles me that I haven't seen more people who are into kind of anti-imperialism or something take this up as something that they enjoy that's fiction. Um, I don't know if you two have thoughts on that, but on, on the idea of like how you can actually kind of in a way map out in power and empires through reading yeah. this at a young age. Mm. I, I think one reason why is because in order to really understand that imperialism is bad, you have to understand that the main character is the bad guy. Mm. Yep. That's hard yeah. for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And I guess, um, I don't know, like you're 13 and reading this. I'm not 13 and reading this, but if you're like 13, 13 and reading, and so I already had some back kind of ideas in my mind. But if when you two were 13 and reading this, what were you thinking about that? The kind of declining empires or like the power dynamics in this? And what do you think about it now on this second read as older men? Yeah, there was definitely like maybe as a 13 year old boy, a bit of like wish fulfillment in there just because of how Paul's character is very like super powerful and sort of like as a young person, like with the limited knowledge that I had about um, like empire and imperialism, I was fortunate in that like when I started U.S. history um, in school, like my freshman year of high school. My teacher was like pretty chill and like for the first the first actual reading assignment, we had to read the opening of A People's History of the United States as like our very first like book uh, as um, history students, because like he was teaching us about how like, you know, you're like he was trying to drive home the point that your textbook that you were assigned was written by someone who had to sell books. So think about it that way. And then he had us read like the opening about, um, you know, because it opens with Christopher Columbus coming to like the new world and stuff. So we read that and that sort of got me on this thing where I started reading more like the rest of the book and started thinking about imperialism. So as a young person, I kind of like had like a less nuanced way of reading it where I was like, oh, Paul's the cool bad, the cool guy who's defeating like, like space, space England and like taking the whole thing down. And that's the end of the story. Um, and it wasn't really until I read like the follow-up books, especially the second and third book, where it gets more into like, oh, the expansion of like Paul's uh, caliphate that he's spreading across the galaxy, where I'm like, oh, okay, it, it kind of speaks to the whole like, like if we're being like, like historic, like getting into like historical materialism, like Marxist historical materialism about how this is like an inter-imperial struggle and not really like a, a like it is revolutionary in the sense that they are asserting like their sovereignty as the planet Arrakis. But then, you know, it becomes like an inter-imperial struggle throughout the sequel books where it's his empire versus the declining old empire and sort of like how in the age of imperialism, that's kind of how a lot of that happened. A lot of empires rising and falling. Um, but, you know, the status quo for the proletariat not changing, just a different empire is in charge of stuff. So that's kind of like how that changed when I read followed up into the sequels and got a little older. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I kind of had a, a similar trajectory. Um, 
And I remember like, so I was, I was like 16 or 17 when I read the book, the books. Um, and like, so I knew enough about history that when I read the first book, um, you know, to me, it seemed like, you know, the, it reminded me a lot of like, honestly, nine 11, um, because basically, I mean, one way to read the book is that, uh, the Benny Gesserit had been, uh, basically putting, stoking up all of these little religions on all of these planets, um, to, to redound to their own benefit and help them in their geopolitical struggles. Uh, and then, uh, someone gets too good at riling up the Arabs, uh, and it blow back, blows back immediately yeah. and, and, and it all blows up in their face. And so I remember reading that and thinking, whoa, there's, there's no way that this book was written before the nineties, right? Like, yeah, there's no way that this guy didn't know about the Afghanistan war. Uh, and sure enough, I looked into it. Yeah, no, 1965. Um, and there were, there were a lot of things like that in the book, right? It felt like very, very, very prescient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I, I just, I thought of like the crude oil, I think it was the sixties in the middle East and the crude oil kind of, I would say disputes, but I think, um, I think it's kind of timeless. Like it's nice. I'm reading it in 2020 and I'm like, Oh, this is kind of makes sense. Um, I guess like the other, so that's like declining empires. And then inevitably as three Muslims, we're going to have to talk about this Muslim business with the middle Eastern and Islamic yeah. references. <laughs> and there's so many mixed thoughts. And I just, I just uh, sent you guys a tweet from 2015 where that big, that big writer that I, what has he written? Why is he so famous? I, this is, I'm like the worst, I'm like the worst person. I'm like, who are these online famous people? I don't know what this why guy is. Why is this guy so famous? Comics. Okay. Yeah. Why is I think he, he put a Muslim girl in a Marvel comic. And that's oh, like yeah. his thing. Hmm. Okay. So he in 2015 was talking with G her about how Dune, uh, despite its sexism and Orientalism is remarkably refreshing to women and racial others. And I think that's something we also should tackle in more depth as well. So first we can tackle the Islamic references and kind of Middle Eastern nods, nods to the Middle East, uh, quote unquote. And then we can tackle the the kind of gender dynamics, the sexism, and whether we view this as Orientalism or not, um, according to definitions of Orientalism. Um, and we can like talk a bit about the white psychology, I guess, of Dune analysis. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, first, yeah, I think first we can tackle the Islamic references in the Middle East. So we, we've kind of been like, I guess, hitting around it a bit, but Arrakis is obviously people think it's a nod to Iraq. Um, you two can talk about whether you think that or not. So I'll lay out a few things. So, and then the spice melange being oil. Yeah. And then um, some of the words that are used are obviously nods to kind of either Sufi Islam or Sunni Islam. I'm saying obviously, so I'm already like baiting it, but I'm okay. I should stop that. But um, what do you guys think about that? And like, do you feel a way? Because I like, found all of these writers who pumped out think pieces since like, I would say starting from like 2015 ish, even academic articles where people are just like taking, taking apart Dune for its Orientalism. And then I found a bunch of like little tweeters who are like, Oh, everybody's dismissing the white savior aspects of Dune and like the kind of trying to relate it to like occupation and invasions that have happened within our uh, lifespans as millennials. And so I'd love to hear both of you talking about, what do you think about these references and parallels? And do you think it's actually white saviorism? Do you think it's Orientalism? Do you think it's fetishizing 
um, these things? Or do you think it's actually a mix? Because there's also arguments that Frank Herbert pulled from many other cultures and religions, but the Muslim references are the most overt, but probably because we're also Muslims. Uh, I can at least talk to the Arrakis piece right away. Um, so we can we can go back and forth on what uh, like actually is there, but at least in what he claims, uh, it was a reference to a star that uh, Arab navigators would use, um, like traditionally, that was called um, al raqs mm -hmm. um, and I guess that means the, the dancer. Um, so that's what his his he claims that that's where it came from. Um, you know, you can say that it sounds, you know, you know, similar to to Iraq, regardless of that. And, and that, that still matters. But I, I was satisfied with that response. Yeah. And I think that uh, with regards. To, so so folks at home know I, I I'm like more of a recent revert. I was not raised Muslim like the other two hosts on here. But like, you know, being like a typical Filipino American, I was raised in a very devout Catholic home. Mm -hmm. And Frank Herbert was also raised Catholic. And this reads like a book that was written by an ex-Catholic because like ex-Catholics have like their own kind of like culture that's separate from Catholicism proper, mm -hmm. kind of like how secular Jewish folks have their own kind of thing going on. And I don't know, it just definitely reads like someone who went to a Catholic school and it was traumatized by a bunch of nuns, um, especially with the way that the Bene Gesserit order is written. You're like, oh, this guy, this guy got slapped like on the wrist by a nun a bunch of times and has a lot of trauma about that. Um, at least that's the way like my amateur reading of that. And I think later on, Frank Herbert identified as a Zen Buddhist and sort of the way that he writes before we get into the specific parts about Islam in the in the book, he writes sort of like the way religions in the future are because it's like 10,000 years in the future. Almost like like the way a, a Unitarian Universalist or like a Baha'i faith person would write about it because the way he writes about it is like it's a synthesis of all the world's religions compiled into like one of their holy books is called like the orange catholic bible which is like the main holy text that um the bene gesserit and all these other people read from which synthesize like different religious faiths which is very like you said if you have friends who are unitarian universalist or baha'i this is very like consistent with that thing where there's like this progressive uh, chain of prophets that reveal more and more, but it's all the same religion and gets synthesized into one. And the specific like religion that they talk about in Dune that like the Fremen, these people believe in is like a synthesis religion uh, called it's like Zen Sunni Buddhism. So like somehow like 10,000 years in the future, a synthesis of like Zen Buddhism and Sunni Islam, even though it's not particularly true to either it's like it borrows a lot from other things as well, like outside of those two religions. Um, but I do think like uh, with the way that he conceives of like centering, like just because I think because it was going to be like set on like a desert planet that's an analog for the Middle East. I do think it was like unavoidable, like he could have chosen like a different way to write the characters, but writing them as like analogs for Arab people um, just kind of came naturally. Um, and sort of like the way that he writes his like. Um, a lot of sci-fi and fantasy writers will like make up like a con lang, like a constructed language. Like, you know, Tolkien wrote like what, like three languages from scratch or whatever. And Frank Herbert was just kind of like, I'm just going to borrow Arab words, Middle Eastern words and kind of like shove them in here and there. Which, you know, I'm not saying that that's bad because like I'm not expecting everyone to be Tolkien and like invent a language and grammar and the antecedent language that, you know, gave way to two other languages. Like that's a bit a lot of work. I'm not expecting that. But I kind of think that that 
trying to put myself in his shoes, that's probably where his logical through line came from, you know, like in the seat of someone who was like ex-Catholic that converted. I can see a lot of those influences there. And as well as him kind of just borrowing from Islam, I'm sure he read about it. Like he's not completely clueless. Yeah. I don't think that it was completely. I think he read the Quran. I'm like, at a minimum. Yeah. yeah. Like so did, so did Jefferson, right? Didn't Thomas Jefferson read the Quran? He had one. So, yeah. yeah, like I, I feel like a lot of these people do read the Quran. Um, I so I read it. I read through because I had seen the Orientalism takes before I read and the the lifting of Islam takes, and I read through and I thought that if you know enough about world religions and world like cultures, that it's a spiritual melting pot in a way. I wasn't like this is it's Islam heavy, perhaps, perhaps, or Arab Middle East heavy, but there's like elements of I would say Navajo culture. There's um, indigenous kind of ideas of matriarchy. Um, mm. I don't know if I'm reaching with that, but then I did confirm the Navajo one because I Google, I was like, is this Navajo? Because in Canada, we do a lot of indigenous, you can do indigenous studies. You don't have to. And I've taken indigenous studies um, a few times. And I felt like the reason it was easy to lift that there's a lot of, I guess, Muslim parallels or Middle Eastern parallels is there, they are perhaps heavier and more overt, but there's, it's, to me, it was a melting pot of a bunch of things that Herbert just took and kind of went with. And even the elements of Islam, it's not one branch of Islam at all, right? We're seeing kind of nods to Sufi Islam. We're seeing nods to Sunni Islam. We're seeing nods, I would say to, I would say to Shia Islam. Yeah, I think the the mm -hmm. way that they talk about the Mahdi is yeah. more in line with, with the Shia interpretation. Yeah, and that's like something that I would say white socialist bros are kind of very obsessed with too because of um, Chapo Traphouse and Matt Chrisman. Yeah. They are. Like there's this weird, <laughs> which which makes sense. And then they also like Dune and like there's this weird overlap of them mm -hmm. that like understand these weird things, not weird things. It's Islam. I love it. Um, but like understand <laughs> these niche things that should be weird to them, but they're not weird to them. Mm -hmm. yet sci-fi was like weird to me but um i i don't know also um I, the idea of the noble savage is something i want to touch on that i keep forgetting yeah so if you two want to go one of you two want to go first i think that that's that's an interesting concept that like i think my my studies have biased me on but I think people are taking the wrong takes when they're going for this Orientalism thing. And they're like, they use words from Arabic, like teacher that are the same, or they use it. And I'm like, how about the like bigger concept of the noble savage? Mm. Yeah. Right. And so I think like a good example of this is like, so he, he, or Paul calls his legions, uh, his Fremen legions, uh, the Fadakin. And like, it's very clearly like a borrowing of uh, the Fadakin. Uh, mm -hmm. which at the time would have been, he probably would have known from Palestinian guerrilla fighters. Um, and I think that that there's, you know, obviously like the idea that, yeah, that these people are hardened by their harsh environment to just be tougher and more brutal. Um, but then on top of it, uh, I, I also think that like Herbert does this thing a lot where he takes um, knowing his audience and maybe this is fair for the audience, but I think this, this is still Orientalism. Uh, like he he uses Arabs and Arab culture as like the the basis for this alien culture because it's foreign and mystical. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's I think that, you know, we can argue back and forth about whether you should be canceled for liking the book. But like, I do think that that is definitionally Orientalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also there's this um, 
sort of there's also things in the book and I, I don't know if I'm injecting it too much into the book uh or if it was like in the miniseries and not in the book but this idea that like the a lot of the religion and the legends like the part w- about Paul being the Mahdi was like implanted like as a fail safe for the Bene Gesserit in case they got stranded on the planet right um which is like another thing where it's like okay so I don't know if he's saying that like they couldn't have conceived of a religion of that like themselves or if he's doing commentary on how, for example, like the Catholic Church spread their religion by like infiltrating uh, indigenous belief systems and sort of melding them with Catholicism. Because, like you know, as a Filipino person, I have parents who do that thing where they're Catholic, but then they believe in like ghosts and spirits and stuff that are very congruent with like uh, indigenous beliefs to different peoples in the Philippines. And that kind of just happens like with Catholics, like all throughout like Latin America and stuff where like, um, like, I don't know if he's saying, if he was making commentary on that, which I think there's a chance that he was being an ex Catholic raised in the church and then converting and rejecting the religion being like, Oh yeah, this is what Catholics do. They go into other countries, um, take advantage of local belief systems and then use it to sort of like manipulate the local populace, which I think is like, kind of what he's alluding to with the way the Bene Gesserit like implanted their own um, beliefs into Fremen society because they had their own indigenous belief systems and like, you know, implanting this, you know, savior Mahdi that's going to come save them. That was like the specific prophecy that is told like by the Fremen is that it will be an off-worlder, like an off-worlder will come and that will be our savior right it's not going to be one of us mm. right which is a very conven- in the story very convenient for paul to fulfill that prophecy being from a foreign planet but you know also for the bene Gesserit, it's very convenient for them because in the event that they got stranded there they could take advantage of this thing that they implanted so you know i think like from me putting myself in frank's shoes again like i think that that was like a smart observation on his part and like injecting the way that the church kind of spread its sort of influence into different indigenous populations. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause I read that, but then I also read it sort of as like, uh, you know, and this happened before it, but I, to me it, it read is eerily similar to the way that say the CIA often would uh, uh, rile up certain uh, sects of say Wahhabism um, specifically so that they could, uh, influence the trajectory of those militants and fight communism in the eighties, uh, only for it to backfire. Blowback. Yeah. That's really smart. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Cause I saw a tweet Shadi had like months ago about Imperial gains and blowback that I'd want to kind of unpack, um, about Dune and Imperial gains and blowback. Do you remember that tweet? <laughs> Do you remember your no, tweet? No, oh, it's, it was I enter a, a fugue no, state anytime was, I post, but it was a, it was a really good tweet about how Dune does illustrate what happens when there's imperial gains and then blowback and Rob saying blowback kind of triggered that memory of that tweet. But, Mm. um, I think, and you mentioned in that tweet, this is white psychology related that white sci-fi nerds don't have the range to understand imperial gains and blowback, even though Herbert is illustrating that in Dune, um, in a way. And do you think it's because they just read it as fiction and don't do the paralleling that we do? I think there's definitely part of that. Like so many people just in, in doing research for this episode, like would say like the Fremen aren't Arab. They're from space. It's 10,000 <laughs> years after this. Like there's no Arabs 10,000 years from now. It's completely different. 
And, the, and that, that's like the dominant take. That's like, that is like 90% of takes. Like the sci-fi takes. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I, I also think that like part of the other, uh, the, like the other thing with like why they don't have the range is like it feels weird to be able to say that there's actually no good guys here. Um, and like the story mostly, yeah, like it talks a lot about the Fremen, but I don't think that the story is like an analysis of Fremen, uh, like most Orientalist works. It talks about the Fremen to, as a reflection for what is going on inside of the empire itself. Um, and, and I think like a lot of people that read sci-fi just don't have the range to, to think about like that this isn't good or bad. This is a product of empire. And like. You can't bin it into like, oh, this is good. And so the politics must be good or this is bad. And therefore the politics must be bad. It's, you know, it's it's a product of its time, but it's also got um, some really salient and interesting criticisms. It's also got some awful ones. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's 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 fiction. You take the good with the bad. Yeah, I, I think like it, it's one of those things where uh maybe someone who's a who's a nerd and like trying to analyze dune will look at it pick out like the very superficial uh allegories and allusions in the book sort of like oh the spice is oil arrakis is the middle east the fremen are arab whatever and kind of walk away from it being like i did my analysis and just feel feeling smart and like laying putting your hat on the rack and being like i did everything that was required of me as a reader and like not wanting to go further and thinking that, you know, the, there's nothing beyond that. I I agree. But like the do you feel like there was who would you identify as the prophet Muhammad in the Dune series? Because I'm, I'm reading this woman's take and I'm just like, not this again. Um, who would you identify? I know this is like kind of shirky. We're getting down to shirky territory here. But. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> This is not my opinion. Like <laughs> anyone listening, like do not look up my address. Do not like. I think that that like to me, it's coded as as Paul kind of, because he is sort of the prophet that takes these people that is like you know kind of like a backwater tribes people, gives them like a rigorous framework to understand how to build like an empire, uh, and establishes what you know we even in this conversation call the caliphate, uh, and then in like record time expands like faster than anything before it since or since again you know i'm a muslim like (laughs) again like i'm not saying that this is a good yeah but that's how it reads to me yeah yeah definitely i don't since since you all like no since like i only reverted recently what do you think about maybe i guess shadi because you haven't read the second book not sure but like the part (laughs) when paul goes like because he becomes like a desert hermit right when he loses his sight yeah and becomes and becomes like like sort of like a public critic of the empire that he had then built like where where do we read into that yeah to me that's like i mean that felt like um and i know a little bit less about this because it seems more in line with like the the shia tradition of of the mahdi but like that kind of read like that to me where he's wandering the desert uh just out there to return again someday um so that, that felt like that's how i read it at the time um, that's still kind of my take, but that's not super like nuanced. Mm-hmm. I I have another question. I like I'm not going to keep being shirky about things, <laughs> but no, because I'm like this person on the Sci-Fi Network should stop writing features. Um, in my <laughs> opinion, in my humble opinion, because I think she's Phoenician uh, and I think she's reaching. But 
Um, there, uh, I guess the there were also nods to obviously Bedouin culture, and I'm I'm not gonna I'll I'll get off the Islam thing for a bit. And we t- kind of talked about it before, or like in like I would say we talked about it a little bit before, but. Like, has there been anything over it that either of you have seen or could find where, like, he, Herbert just admits that he was, like, studying a certain region, region like the Arab Pol- Arabian Peninsula or something? Have you ever seen that? Like, that's what I... Because people are all, like, making these arguments where, like, they're like, he didn't or he did. And I think it's very... I don't know. I thought that he said somewhere, and I don't have it up, so somebody online is probably going to prove me wrong and call me an idiot, but, like... I thought that he was was specifically thinking about um, the uh, forgetting the name of it now, but the the, the desert quarter of uh, like the Arabian Peninsula. Um, that's that's what I thought that at least part of it was, and that he was specifically pulling from the Bedouin cultures there and the Tuareg people, which is sort of where that blue theme or motif comes about. Yeah. And he also strikes me as kind of like a, uh, again, just more like reading about his life and his person. Like, again, as someone who was like raised as like a white person in the 60s, who like, you know, converted to Buddhism later in life, like there's sort of like a stereotype where these people have like a like a syncretic sort of worldview where they just kind of like get interested in in quote unquote foreign cultures and just research them for fun, especially as a writer and someone who's well read like that. So I don't find it out of place for him to just borrow like conveniently from different cultures, especially um, in writing a work of fiction like this. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause it reminds me there's people who are also arguing that like, no, he just like made up this world. And I was like, I don't think so. Like <laughs> I was like, that, I don't think so. Like, I don't think this white man just made up this world. Um, there was just too much. That was just too obvious. And then um, I want to shift to talking about gender dynamics. Cause I thought for the sixties, this was really interesting for 65 i thought it was interesting the gender dynamics so some people say there's sexism okay there's sexism now in 2020 um but i thought that that if i understood it correctly i thought it was kind of progressive is that fair like it's not but it's kind of like i i think there's elements where i'm like okay like this is fine um i don't know what do you both think i know shadi has a gender take but I don't want to taint it fully, but I thought I, I was, I don't know if I'm too forgiving. Like I'm one of those forgiving people. That's like, this is from 1965. This is fine. But, um, I think if the stuff from 1965 tends to be really bad and wouldn't hold up now. And this did hold up to me because it's sci-fi. I don't know. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like a two part thing, maybe three part. So like, I think it relies like insanely heavy on gender essentialism. Yeah. So like, the idea of uh, of the uh, uh, the Quisatadarak is the idea that there is a collective feminine unconscious that by imbibing in a certain drug, uh, specially trained women can access and they can they can access this like female hive mind or something, which is like Nexium. Right, kind right. of like that's why I was like, this is relevant. Like that's I well, think my brain is like very like. <laughs> I was like, this is like the cult Nexium. Okay, but sorry, keep going. So so there's so there's that which to me reads as like very gender essentialist. Um, but then there's this guy, the the Quizat Tadarak, who's a man. So he's the only man that can fulfill the prophecy, mm-hmm. and his thing is that uh, he can look, he can imbibe the drug, and see the feminine side of this consciousness 
but he can also access what's beyond it, which is like the masculine side of it. And he's the only person that can do this. Every, every other man that does it dies. So that feels very gender essentialist to me. Um, however, I mean, it, it is uh, like a very, like women have, uh, you know, it's, it's still a patriarchal society. Uh, and, and there's even one scene where like Paul um, does like trial by combat and like he, he like wins, he kills the guy. And they're like, congratulations. Here's the widow of the guy you just killed. She's your slave now. And he's like, like very weirded out by it. But they're like, you have to take this. His mom is like, you have to take the slave. Like this is part of the culture. So like portraying them as sort of like brutal and like backwards in that way was kind of uh, weird. But then the Bene Gesserit are sort of this, this group of women that are very empowered. And, um, you know, I think that, that they're written in a way where it's not just like a lot of sci-fi at the time. Uh, writes women as like being like overly controlled by their emotions. And I feel like Lady Jessica is like a very good example of a strong, complex woman. Uh, and I actually think the the David Lynch book does a really, or David Lynch movie rather, does like a very bad job of of giving her like that depth. Um, because like basically as soon as they land in the desert in the movie, she starts screaming and crying and her 15 year old son has to like pull her together. Whereas in the book, she she's like, all right, listen, here's what we're going to do. And basically pushes him into like doing a knife fight with a guy so that they ingratiate themselves with the tribe. And she's like, sorry, son, tough luck. Like, you got to do it, which is that's like a much different portrayal. Um, that being said, I think some of the later books, uh, as, as it gets further in, uh, it, it, it becomes more apparent, I think, some of the sexism. Oh, okay. So, like, uh, Rob, I don't know if you remember, uh, listeners, this is a little graphic, but Rob, I don't know if you remember uh, in in the fourth book where the Duncan Idaho clone uh, is climbing up. Yeah, there's a guy named Duncan Idaho for the listener, by the way. <laughs> um, so he's he's climbing up the wall, and the, the 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 protagonist, who's a woman, is watching him, and he does it so well climbing this wall that she orgasms on the spot just from watching him climb. Cause men are so great. Like yeah. it's insane. <laughs> in, in, in the film, in, in the film, I think this is the Jason Momoa character for folks at home. Oh, okay. <laughs> now people are like, Oh yeah. I get it. No, I'm kidding. No, I know. Yeah. But like, no, but like, I feel like that's supposed to, like, okay. That's interesting. Men are so irresistible. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> Uh, Rob, how so do you feel? I'll get off my soapbox, but that's that's no, no, that's interesting. Like, no, that's like kind of back. okay. So like, I can't be blamed for my like. I think it's a kind of good for 1965. Yeah, um, definitely. My and mind I, is a prison. Yeah, I, I agree, especially like because I in the first book, especially, and even in the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries, like yeah, the I do think that Lady Jessica as a character is very like compelling, especially like if we're taking it for granted that in the year 10,000 were ruled by a system of space feudalism right and sort of like if we were to i don't know like if, if this were sort of like in a more like game of thrones context right where if we were like straight up in a medieval um fantasy setting uh this sort of like compelling story of like the favored concubine of this noble person sort of like making her way through society any way she can is sort of interesting um, in a way. And I, I guess, again, that's, I don't know if that speaks to like it being kind of lazy to have space feudalism as your basis for government, 
like if that's a little too like on the nose um but yeah i think that she's a compelling character but i do agree with a lot of your takes about gender essentialism in the series and yeah it gets way weirder as the series goes on but yeah i nothing beyond that really other than yeah the lady jessica is really interesting um he does make it a point that the fremen sort of like in their uh worship like their they have a matriarchal system of yeah. you know who holds power and this speaks a lot i think when we're talking about like maybe federici or something with like the disempowerment of women um from the transition up from uh like mostly feudal society to capitalist society sort of like you know women being empowered in certain like quote unquote what what they would have said, I'm not saying this here, but what they would have said in the book, what, what, what the imperial folks would have called a more primitive society, like the the Fremen, having like, even though the Bene Gesserit sort of do have real power, they're sort of like in the background and behind the scenes controlling stuff. Whereas like these like natives of Arrakis like do have matriarchs like, um I think they just call them Reverend Mothers, I think, mm. um, on their planet. Um, and you know, part of that, they do say that, Ooh, was seated by the Benny Gesserit, but I think it's interesting that, you know, Frank Herbert makes that a point as well. Um, with, you know, different indigenous belief structures, people talk about that a lot in like, um, Filipino decolonization discourse about like the disempowerment of like Babaylan and like women who were held positions of like, uh, authority within communities before the Catholic church arrived and disempowered them. So I think that's an interesting take that he has. Again, it's not obviously it's not perfect. It's 965 written by a dude, but I think those points are interesting. But I agree with everything Shadi said too. Yeah, I, I thought the matriarchy part was compelling. I didn't get to the book for orgasm. I would have been like, what the fuck? But no. <laughs> I would have been like, ah, this is weird. But um, no, I, I think that just like having a man write about matriarchy in 1965 made me kind of, I don't know, compelled to be like, this is this is good, but like I also don't need to be like giving white men too much. Um, but uh, what I think is interesting is with the 2020 film adaptation, Dr. Kynes becomes is played by a woman. And yeah. so in casting, there's often these calls where it's like Hermione can't be black. That was a big controversy um, online and trended. And, and there's other moments like that where people are so set on like whatever they read into a book as the character. And this Dr. Kynes is clearly a man in Dune, the books, yet is casted as a woman uh, for the movie. And I I think that's very interesting and compelling. And I would want to talk about that a bit and how my own opinion is that characters don't always have to be whatever they're written as because it's more about like the spirit of the character or the embodiment. But you two as closer readers of this series, how do you feel about that casting choice? Or just in general, I guess. I, I liked what Shadi said earlier about like, Thank God that David Lynch movie was from earlier because people would have had these qualms about certain types of representation. But to me, this is not a representation thing. This is more like, a OK, yeah, this person can be played by anyone in this case. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think like, Rob, I know that there's like a little bit in the story about the relationship between Liet Kynes and, and his father. But there's no reason that that can't like be a father daughter thing instead of a, um, a, a father-son thing. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't really think it, it makes much of a difference. So, Yeah, same. I like. I don't think it makes much of a difference. I think it's it's cool. Yeah. Uh, I think it'll be an interesting character. I don't, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of opportunities, I think, with Dune having such a large cast 
of characters. Like there's a good, like who, do, do you know who's playing Dr. Kynes? Cause I think it's interesting because there's an opportunity here to have a mix of both established actors and like new up and coming actors. Um, kind of like how Star Wars kind of does that, where your cast is so big, you can mix them in and like launch a couple of careers that way. So I think that that's interesting. Like that's the only part of representation discourse that like kind of interests me is like how it relates to like the labor aspect of it and people being shut out of like furthering their careers. Um, mm, but that's interesting, but so, sort of like that's the only part that really interests me because like, you know, now now we're shutting out a bunch of potential people who need jobs. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, having a woman, I think it's a black woman too, who's playing Dr. Kynes. In yeah. The Sharon movie. Duncan Brewster. I've never heard of this actress. Mm, yeah. British so actress. That's a, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. That they picked it, but I don't think it's definitely not going to have a negative impact on the story. Um, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing the portrayal. I think I haven't seen a lot of people being really mad at that casting. And I think that kind of speaks again to how Dune is kind of relegated to being a bit more obscure um in terms of like the collective sci-fi consciousness there's like there's hardcore fans and adherents of dune but since it never had a fully successful film adaptation or movie tv show adaptation um it's like a very small group of people who are like not super vocal online all the time like the star wars people who like won't shut the fuck up about it (laughs) so i think that that contributes to people not being as vocally upset but i personally think it's really cool and i'm looking forward to seeing it yeah, and then do you think there's a eugenics aspect to Dune? That's like a big question, but I oh yeah, <laughs> I, like, I would like yeah. to talk about it. I would like to discuss the eugenics aspect because I am tired of like I saw like people just you know when um movie casting comes out, so they like have like all the headshots of the actors. So I saw like multiple people being like, "They're all of Dune is supposed to be POC." Like, look at these casting things. And I'm like, I don't care about this. Let's just talk about this eugenics thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care about these, like, photo tiles. I want to talk about the eugenics in Dune. Um, Literally you, a breeding program. Yeah. So, I, like, like birthright. Um, just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, but allegedly. Bam. Um, but, uh, but, uh, I don't know if I'll edit that. Um, but anyways, uh, what do we think about the eugenics in Dune? I'd like to hear from both of you first, uh, before we have my take on it. Well, I just had my take on it, but. Yeah, I I can take a swing at it. Um, yeah, it's, it's eugenic. There's a lot of eugenics. Uh, I think on the face of it, like if you read the book, just kind of start to finish, I think it's pretty. I don't know. Actually, now I'm not sure how how whether it's pro or anti eugenics, but that doesn't really matter. It's from 1965. Who cares? But it's definitely in there. So like Paul, right? Yeah, is like the the result of this breeding program, um, and he's sort of like the breeding program kind of gone a little wrong. Mm. Like his mom was supposed to have a girl, and she went rogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ends up basically still fulfilling the same prophecy um so you can kind of argue that like the the thrust of the book is that eugenics works kind of and then like there's but there's the broader thing i think that interests me more uh in terms of eugenics which is like the idea that social darwinism is like a prevailing factor in in the dune universe so like it's it's like very heavily stated that like the reason that the Fremen are tough and like better is because like if you aren't tough and better, you don't survive. It's like like that uh, because later in the series, um, 
Arrakis becomes like a water planet or there's water on the planet and, and people become water fat, as they call it. Mm. Um, and it, it heavily like implies that those people are weaker and less more decadent and not able to fight effectively, which eh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if, if you feel the same way, Rob. But yeah, no, definitely is definitely like sort of that. Um, it reminds me of like every weird person who like has like a boomer take about how America now is like Rome at the end of yes. Rome <laughs> and being like yeah. all these neo-cultural Marxists are destroying <laughs> yeah. America just like they destroyed Rome. Remember? <laughs> Remember when when uh, trans people destroyed Rome? Oh my God, it's yeah. awful. And like some stupid meme that has like no historical context, but they just put like a graphic over it, like some PragerU shit. Um, yeah. yeah, like yeah, Marx so would respect your pronouns. Yeah, like that kind like of thing. Like you're ruining the society. Or, or the one that's like, it's like, like, uh, tough times create, uh, like hard strong men. men. Strong men. <laughs> yeah, strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men, men. create bad times. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it, it's, it's so, such stupid cheap dog shit. And it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 the one thing too about the eugenics thing that comes up for me and is kind of interesting is I always thought it's like, what makes the noble families in the universe like better, like than everyone else? Like, why is it their bloodlines that need to be united to breed this like Ubermensch character that they're alluding to? And like, I tried to, I don't really fully understand in the lore, like what the justification is for why specifically the noble bloodlines are the good ones that we need in order to unify the bloodlines. It, it reminds me too much of, uh, stupid like warhammer 40k sort of stuff yeah. like the primarchs of the space warhammer. marine orders it's <laughs> it's it. it's uh it's a I'm, thing i know it's i'm certainly learning a thing. so much this year um yeah but but the whole idea that like there's a couple like groups of people like several people throughout the galaxy who are genetically superior and we need to merge those bloodlines not other people's but these ones specifically in order to create our like next like stage in human evolution or whatever like elves in dungeons and dragons am i getting this right because elves have the good blood in dungeons and dragons i don't know i'm learning about all of this (laughs) to run this podcast i think for me this kind of gets into the white psychology a little bit Mm -hmm. um yeah because like so and one way to read dune you know if you're reading it as like an analysis of of like the white mind is like white people are scheming. They are always like <laughs> plotting and like coming up with like, like kooky schemes and none of them ever work. Hmm. Like, I don't think aside from Paul, like we can't, I cannot name a single white person in the book series that analyzes a situation correctly, uh, develops a plan based on that <laughs> and then executes that plan and have it work. Every single time somebody botches it. And these are supposed to be the smartest people in the universe, right? So like the Bene Gesserit, right? They spend 10,000 years doing this, this breeding program to, to do this plan for something. Mm. And so they, you know, they have this guy that's, you know, supposed to be like you know, the, the, the final stage. They have one more step and then they got it. They, they've gotten it all right for 10,000 years and they just need this woman to have one more daughter and then they can merge the, the bloodlines and they've got it. And, uh, Somehow they blow it like fourth quarter, like somehow they manage to blow it and it results in basically all of them getting put in prison for like the next 10,000 years. God, I it's white psychology. 
I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, that's all I have to say. And then um, as we wind down, are there any like big things we want to cover? I, I just think that there's like a lot of like, I think that it's a good commentary on unchecked capitalism uh, in a way. Um, extraction, um, letting STEM freaks run the world. Like that's that's yeah. how, that's how I thought of it. I was like, this is like if we let Elon Musk run the world and some others. Yeah, because you have this whole like class of people. So for folks who haven't read it, there's like in the Dune story, there's like uh like one of those like war against the machines type thing that happens in, in like Terminator and the Matrix and stuff, where the machines go rogue and they lead something. It's actually called like the Butlerian Jihad, where they sort of purge the galaxy of like all thinking machines and they replace it with a class of people called Mentats who are like thinking who are like thinking like living computers who do computations and calculations like in real time and function as computers but they're people right and sort of like it it, it is you see how like people over rely on these like living computers like um baron harkonnen's like living computer mentat guy i forgot his name piter there we piter there we go like he, he he fucks up like every mentat like every major mentat character dies or something or fucks up a plan in some like crazy way that they couldn't foresee um either because like paul was too smart or paul like actually did the part of thinking and they couldn't stymie his his scheme but yeah just sort of this over-reliance on you know our exalted stem overlords that we're being told are going to save us from uh climate change uh instead of just inventing some stupid two-person car that goes really fast my like other thing I want to touch on definitely before we end is like the change of the word jihad to crusade. Um, I, I think it's I don't know. I have I understand and don't understand. And I think they they do say both in the book. Um, in the book. Yeah. In, in the book, they say both. And I think like in the trailer, they have the line where they say crusade. Right. Instead of jihad. And. I think like I'm going to wait until the movie comes out to see like if they actually do it in the movie or not and like reserve my take on that. But I do think my take for the trailer is that they're going to they know that they're going to get fucked up if they say mm. jihad in the trailer. And like Ben Shapiro is going to make some video about like they say jihad in the trailer. And this, is, <laughs> yeah. this, is, uh, yeah. this is a scheme by, by, by the neo-Marxists and the Islamists to overthrow America or whatever. And then like he'll freak out and there'll be all these think pieces, which, you know, if they wanted to drum up controversy, they probably should have just done it and like gotten a lot of free press. But um, I think that they decided to not do that in the trailer. But I'd be interested to see if in the final film they do say jihad. Yeah. Oh, that's that actually, Rob, is the reason why I think they're probably not going to say jihad in the final film. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it seems like increasingly there's a trend in Hollywood to drum up controversies out of nothing mm -hmm. um, because it it gets people to watch the movie. So I think like there was some leak, I think, with like Lady Ghostbusters where it came out that they actually were trying to stoke some sort of controversy to get people to go see the movie. And I think, you know, for like a lot of the Star Wars movies, there's like this culture war aspect to it too. And it helps box office sales. So that is one reason why it surprises me that they they didn't, if they were going to, if they say it later in the movie. Yeah, because people would hate watch it. People would hate watch it. Oh, absolutely. It's the movie that you don't, your your government doesn't want you to see. Yeah, the In Defense of Looting book. Um, I interviewed Vicky Osterweil on this podcast. She said the majority of her sales came from right-wing, like, fanatics. 
who wanted to just like binge read it and don't know how to torrent or get it for free because they're not going to reach <laughs> out to her. And she's like, so they like buy it and then review, do a verified review of it because they purchased, they actually purchased it. And it's, it's, it would have been good. Um, it would have definitely been, I, I hate read. I hate watch. So like, I'm sure the right does that too. Um, because they want to know the content, but there was an Al Jazeera piece where they pulled the line from the trailer, which was um, a crusade is coming. And Al Jazeera, the writer, the think piece writer kind of went off on how like what Paul led was a jihad, not a crusade. And like it went kind of um, it went kind of like into an interesting place with um, how like Muslimness is erased in Hollywood unless it's shot at. Um, that's like the argument that the author makes in the line they use. And I guess. Um, but the thing is, to me, Dune is not Muslim. So I wouldn't I wouldn't expect it. Does that make sense? But maybe I haven't done a close enough reading. Um, but I, I didn't read Dune and say, like, this is a Muslim book, like this Al Jazeera author, I think, and this sci-fi author who does articles on that sci-fi website. Mm, interesting, because I, I did read it uh, as, as like a Muslim book. Um, but I read this as like, if they're keeping the word jihad out of the movie, uh, it's because I think post 9-11, it's just too sensitive to make this movie and have like it be that overt that that's what it is. Um, and obviously you can say like, oh, but uh, but uh, Paul's not the good guy and like the Fremen aren't good. Yeah. Um, but you but the, even then you have to admit that like the Bene Gesserit kind of had it coming. Right. They had the Missionara Protectiva that like laid the groundwork here, like. It's, you know, as we've been talking about, like, it's, it's like a classic instance of blowback and like, I, I, I don't know that I would want to touch that in Hollywood. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. How about you, Rob? Did you read this as a Muslim? Well, you weren't a Muslim yet. This is so no, interesting, Rob. Okay. How did you read this yeah. book? I was, I was, I was a, I was a re- recently, uh, re- recent ex-Catholic when I read it. So that's kind of like my reading. I, I definitely like. Grew, grew up like thinking about it in that way um but you know growing up in like mostly around like other filipinos and like filipino catholics like i didn't have a lot of muslim friends to like bounce the ideas off of mm. in the town that we came up it, we grew up in but yeah i mean i could definitely see it um growing up and that was definitely a, a reading of it but yeah i definitely agree with um what you were saying about the jihad thing but uh Again, like I'll probably wait until I see the actual like full film, yeah, to have more things to say about it. But yeah, we're gonna do a post. We're gonna do a post review. Um, yeah, after think, after the midnight screening that we go to. Yeah, the one that we're gonna go cities. to. You know, <laughs> with our masks on yeah. at the open theaters. Um, yeah, I I think I didn't read it as a Muslim book though because I'm tainted. I I I just knew I shouldn't read it as a Muslim book because. I read it at this age. I think if I read it when I was younger, I would have been like, this is so Muslim, um, stuff like that. But I think I was just very, I think I was averse to sci-fi in general. I'm a hater. I was like, I'm not letting this book be real. Um, The one thing that I wanted to say is that like in rereading the book, uh, the golden path reads to me as like the war on terror. Because like basically, so that, you know, what happens is he, he gets these visions of this horrible future uh, and that like the only way to prevent this awful thing that he can't describe to anyone, by the way, it's just in his brain. Um, the only way to do this is to kill by his words, like trillions of people mm-hmm. across the galaxy. Like there's a scene in the second book where there, he's like, he's like, am I doing the wrong thing? And he, he's like, you know, talking to his, his advisors and he's like, 
you know, like Hitler and, and, uh, and Genghis Khan, like they killed like tens of millions of people. Am I worse than them? And they're like, that's rookie numbers, sir. Like you put up much, much bigger kill numbers than that. So, so it's this extremely vague, like thing that kills tons of people to prevent this like awful future that's never really explained. Uh, and it's, there's no goal. Nobody knows what it is. It's, I mean, to me, it reads like bringing freedom and democracy to the world. Hmm. That's a good, I think that's a really good take. Yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think many have that range. <laughs> like I, I, cause when I was looking at like forums and stuff, I was like, no one's thinking of this the way we are. There's a few people who are like, oh, oil. But then you, you, like you said, there's people who are like, it's not oil. It's a spice. Um, <laughs> It's just like, I was just like, or like, or they say it's a different type of resource. Um, so there's people who've argued that it's just, it's just a different type of resource. Like they don't want to make the analogy mm. to oil. They want the spice what to be its own resource. They're like, it's a resource. Like I saw people like, like and any sci-fi property with like some <laughs> fictional, like, like, like space resource. It's like 90% of the time is oil. Yeah. It's, it's 90% of the yeah. time, like an analogy to oil. Yeah, and I guess did either of you watch um is it called it's not called that. I was going to name it something that it's not. The movie I think is with Orlando Bloom. Is it called Kingdom of Oh, Kingdom of Heaven. Did either yeah, of you Kingdom watch it? Yeah, when a I was long really time little. ago. When I was really little, when you were 5 years old. Okay. Like very young. <laughs> like Yeah. Um I mean, I watched it like most recently maybe like 3 years ago. Okay. Do you do you think do you think that the time that came out, it wouldn't have gotten the criticisms of Orientalism that this will get. Because I'm waiting for people to like froth at the mouth with think pieces about this. Like we're going to get the Wajahats and like that whole crew, just like just like two weeks of pieces. That's because their paycheck depends on it. I don't know that they actually think that. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, that's actually true. Um, And then, yeah, if we can unpack the oil analogy, I guess that's like the big one to me because I think it's it's such a big franchise or I guess just Dune is just so big. And I don't understand sometimes how people who read this don't understand like geopolitics of oil when they do read this or like these movies are like huge movies and huge releases. Like the hype for the trailer made it trend on Twitter for a day. Um, so many like David Lynch is huge and David Lynch did the first movie. Like, like what do you think the gap is for like us understanding the geopolitical kind of analogies not only the gap but like the geopolitics to me is so evident with the oil or the spice uh, and extraction we're going back to this climate change question in a way but i guess um yeah do you do you think it's also an adequate like 40 plus years later do you think it's also adequate or 40 years 35 years later <laughs> do you think it's an adequate uh like analogy because june is being used in classes again like environmental studies classes maybe maybe not uh i wouldn't say maybe like sufficient for a full understanding of it but i think like me reading it as like 13 it was an interesting like entryway into thinking about um resource extraction and uh like how like you know fighting over territory because of resource um scarcity uh works so i think it's interesting in that way like if you were to introduce it to someone who's like younger and like really would you know tune out and get really bored if you started lecturing them about like the history of like, you know, the struggle for oil and stuff. I think that this would be an interesting entryway for a young person to think about it through like an interesting adventure book. Um, yeah, so not, not sufficient for a full understanding, but it, like an interesting way to get started thinking about it. 
Yeah, I think as far as sci-fi goes, it's definitely one of the better understandings of environmentalism and certainly better than most golden age sci-fi, which basically like takes the take that like, like terraforming is huge Mm -hmm. and like terraforming is like kind of seen as an unquestioned, like good thing. Uh, And I think this has a much more nuanced position than that. Um, I think that there's better sci-fi that's made now. Um that talks about climate change in, in interesting ways, but yeah, for the time and especially given how foundational it is, I don't think it's a bad place to start. Yeah. I would say with regards to like environmentalism and sci-fi, I don't remember what year it came out, but my favorite one to recommend for like young people to read is like, it's a very, very short, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin book. Like the word for world is forest. That's a very good like entry, entry books. It's very short. It's almost like novella length. And it's essentially it's it's Avatar, but better like Avatar, like decades before Avatar came out. Um, and I would highly recommend people to give that book a read, especially for like very young people. If you want to give a young person a primer on both um, resource extraction, geopolitics and like indigenous struggle against colonizers. It's a very good book, I think, in entryway. It's only like I think like 100 or so pages. Yeah, I was going to ask you two for recommendations. I keep people keep telling me Neuromancer. Yeah. Am I saying it wrong? <laughs> like, uh, well, like, I like it, but I don't think it's a good. Oh, okay. like, it's fun. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say it's fun. Okay. Like uh, beyond the surface level, there's some interesting like predicting future technology. But it's very to me, at least in my opinion, is like it's a dude doing some wish fulfillment stuff <laughs> in the future. And there's a hot girl that likes him. <laughs> And is hot. Yeah. You know, she she's kind of like the main like archetype for a lot of the uh like the razor girl yeah. archetype. They call her a razor girl, and that became a trope in like cyberpunk, where it's like a very highly competent like fighter assassin lady who like wears tight leather all the time and somehow finds the mediocre main male character really attractive and they fuck a lot. So this is like a Harley Quinn situation. Yeah, yeah, kind of, because she's like like a like a super assassin crazy lady. Okay. Yeah. It's like a weird world for me. I'm, I yeah. understand it, though, because I keep making references to other things to make sense of it. I'm like trying to graft. So a, a one potential defense that I would give of uh, of Neuromancer is that, like, to me, that book is interesting because the world that like is situated in is basically like there's a government, but there isn't really a government. Mm. Like everything is moderated and like modulated by um uh, like these corporations, it's these mega corporations that all exist online. This is 1983, 1982. So that was like actually very like prescient at the time. But so you log in to this, to this um, cyberspace and all commerce happens on it. All transactions happen on it. Um, and like, it's basically because it's all on these private servers, none of it's regulated by the government. And so these corporations, because it happens on their platforms, they effectively become the government. So that that to me is interesting. And so it's interesting for that. I think I think one thing that's interesting to me about Neuromancer and like, I guess, cyberpunk of the time in general, like flowing into like Blade Runner and stuff is like how very specifically it reflects economic anxieties about Japan as Japan being a rising global power, because now it's like a lot of people are very like anti-China online and very like like you know dissing on like huawei and all these chinese corporations but if you read neuromancer this is like a lot of when you know the buy american stuff was really big and you had ronald reagan doing his dumb shit like investing in 
untold amounts of money into like the American automotive industry and like keeping Harley Davidson afloat, which is like a zombie company right now. Um, <laughs> like, the, like just through in, like protective tariffs and stuff and the sort of anxiety about J- Japanese products, like Japanese cars and electronics overtaking American industry is very like front and center in a lot of cyberpunk stuff, just because like everything is Japanese like all of the evil corporations are Japanese. They have Japanese names. It gives them an excuse to have like samurai swords and shit in the future, too, which, you know, for the aesthetics is fun. But like, yeah, definitely that's an interesting part, I think, about cyberpunk literature is this anxiety about Japanese stuff that doesn't really exist, I think, anymore in our modern era. Like interesting time capsule like that. I don't know. I, I don't have this range. So like even like <laughs> I'm like when you were describing it, I was like, this is like Mr. Robot. It's like the Matrix. I mean, Mr. Robot definitely like, ha- yeah, Mr. Okay. Robot also like is part of, I think, of that lineage. Okay, that makes me feel better. Removed. Okay, that yeah. makes me feel better. Um, okay, is there anything else we want to say about Dune before we like talk about, well, yeah, as, as the only three Muslims talking about Dune that I can find, uh, is there anything else we should make as commentary about this Muslim but not Muslim book by Mr. Philip Herbert? Is there anything we want to state or like about the takes that might come or may not come or have come? Yeah, I can I can say my my closing piece, because this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, I think that a lot of times, uh, like especially Muslim discourse gets into this question of like, is it problematic? Is it Orientalist? Is this a good book or is this a bad book? Does reading this book make me a good person or a bad person? And I think that that's very, very, very naive because it's like, you know, at least for me in America, I know not sure here in Canada, but like. Like we live in a settler colony that started like, you know, half of it was like a get rich quick scheme based on importing chattel slaves. Uh, Up in the north, it was uh, a group of people that found medieval Europe not religiously conservative enough. Yeah. So those two groups of people came and killed many of the people on the native continent. So that's the the milieu in which all of this happens. It's all racist. So you can't extract Dune from this and be like, no, 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 no. See, this one's extra racist or, you know, see, this is this stuff that I watch. This is the good stuff. Mm. I think that's naive and silly. Um, And uh, yeah, give it a shot. I like it. How about you, Rob? Yeah, same. Same. Definitely. Like, I I find it interesting. It's definitely like not for everyone. I know just because of like the writing style is not uh, everyone's cup of tea, but Again, like someone who um, is more tied in, as like a recent uh, revert to Islam and like more tied into like Filipino American discourse and like a lot of media criticism from prominent Filipino Americans is again, a lot about like media representation and like, you know, I want to see more Filipino Americans on TV and stuff. But I think once you get more into the involved into like the activist side and like forging ties with people back home in the Philippines who are focused on the anti-imperial part of our activism and focused more on like um, degrading the abilities of U.S. imperialism to continue to oppress our families and friends back home in the Philippines. That makes reading Dune more interesting, like reading it as uh, like critique of imperialism. And then the later books sort of like um, being like to me, like a critique of sort of like uh what, what what is it? it it's like a different it's not it's not decolonization but sort of like struggles for national sovereignty that become like a struggle between imperialist powers 
um, mm. which is something that becomes interesting to me to read. So if you read it like that and you're not thinking about it too hard as like, you know, is this good representation for 65, you know, and read it more as like a critique of imperialism and inter-imperialist um, struggle, like that's very an interesting reading for me. And I think that's an interesting way to read the first three books in particular. I think the first three books are a very tight narrative before the story goes off the rails and starts to get a bit more out there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think of that too. When I consume, I guess, pop culture, I don't, I don't think people can view it through a lens of good dog versus bad dog. Like Eve Sedgwick's concept of like how you consume culture, pop culture. Cause, um, like Shadi said, like we live, we live on like a, the worst and the worst possible way. And like, it's very privileged to like be a pundit and pontificate on the goodness or badness of, of things that you consume and nothing's going to ever be perfect or morally perfect. And it's weird, but I appreciate that we could have this conversation and talk about imperialism and national sovereignty um, or sovereignty and extraction and the environment. And um, where can people find both of you? And then can you each list some good sci-fi or fiction that you think people should read, listen to and why? Uh, yeah, folks. So again, I'm Rob. Um, my Handle is at Smooth Poser on Twitter. Uh, I am a Philippine American activist, uh, mainly focusing on the human rights struggle back home in the Philippines. I am the chair of an organization, an organization based in DC called Katarungan, which is a part of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, or ICHIRP. Um, I also host my own podcast, which is very new. We only have one episode so far called uh, All the Wrong Lessons, and the uh, handle is at Wrong Lessons Pod where we, me and my friends sort of talk about uh, how masculinity is portrayed in popular media and like what behaviors are portrayed as good, what is bad, like what characters are rewarded for and what they're punished for. Our premiere episode is mainly about Anakin Skywalker and how the Jedi Order failed him as his parents, essentially. Like his path to the dark side was was not really predestined as the story would have you believe, but more a uh, like a product of the fact that the Jedi Order neglected his needs as a young boy and sort of like, you know, that trauma like culminated in him being a weird um, space fascist. Uh, so that that's our hot take. And it's I, I had a lot of fun recording it. So please look that up. It's called at Wrong Lessons Pod. All the Wrong Lessons is the name of the show. Um, but yeah, I would go back to in terms of recommendations, I would again say um, the word for world is forest by Ursula K. Le Guin is a great science fiction property. Again, talking about a lot of similar themes with decolonization, indigenous struggle, and environmentalism. And it's very short. You can finish it off in maybe like a day. Um, and then again, uh, I know probably people have read it who are sci-fi heads, but read Octavia Butler, like stuff by her. It's hard to find science fiction written by black women. And the Sower series is very good. It is a little uh, triggering for folks because it, it hits up very close to home with like the way that she writes like her dystopian future where it's not straight up Mad Max, quote, like like fully, but sort of like the declining end, sort of like watching America as like a slowly declining empire um, and just sort of like this. There is order, but there's not order sort of world that she builds is very interesting and very good. So, yeah, anything by Octavia Butler. and. Anything by Ursula Le Guin. Like, I know I recommended that book, but the rest of her books are excellent as well. Um, yeah, I'm uh, Shadi. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I don't really have any other stuff to plug, um, but I do organizing stuff here in Madison. 
In terms of other sci-fi, uh, yeah, I think Rob kind of stole my thunder. I mean, Ursula Le Guin is, is really good. Uh, the Dispossessed, I think, is a great place to start. Otherwise, Left Hand of Darkness. I think in addition to that, um, if you're looking for something new, unfortunately, you know, it's written by a white man, but I really like the Annihilation series. So a lot of people know Annihilation from the movie that came out. Um, but the movie, to me, kind of raises like an allegory for like depression or something like brain psychology, but like the, the book series is much more about um, uh, climate change and like the ineptitude of science and like governmental agencies to both understand and handle it. Um, and uh, basically everyone in the first book is, is a woman. Um, I think at least some of them are women of color. It's uh, I, I like the book series. I think it's good. And, and uh, I think people should read it if they're looking for something newer. Okay. Thank you both so much. Wait, Vishati, can we have one last white psychology take on, on this? I'm sorry. I yeah. love white, the white psychology. What's the white psychology of Dune? I mean, I, I really think that my big white psychology take was was sort of the scheming thing that I was talking about. I think that's that's really how you can read it because it's like so much of like uh, of it is like, that that these these people think that they are so smart and they're the experts in their field or whatever and they're uh you know you're even supposed to see paul as like you know even if you're you know he's like the stand-in for like your your white 14 year old boy reading the story and even he doesn't really do anything in the way that he intended to or wanted to it's i mean it's it's really is like just 850 pages of people like thinking that they're smarter than Arabs and then eating shit. Yeah. Consistently. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that's, that is the actual take. And yeah, so I think, I think that, the, the, yeah, it's, it's, uh, white people love schemes. They love plans. <laughs> uh, they never work. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibipti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha. Mm-hmm.